You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Five, six, seven, eight. Holla, boys and girls, it's the BGN. Coming from the Marvel world to the DC friends. All the way from Hollywood to the PCN. She defends everyone from sleazy men. Won't apologize for spitting Shonda Rhimes. The space that we make is never colonized. Talking games and movies that actors were. Better shake your booties for Black Girl Nerds. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host this week. We are pleased to present to you this actor who is currently appearing on a new show that premiered just this week. The name of the show is called True Detective Night Country, which just made its debut and everybody is buzzing about it. We have on our show Callie Reese. She's an American professional boxer and actress holding a world champion title in the female middleweight and female light welterweight classes. After making her acting debut as a boxer trying to rescue her missing sister and catch the fair one, she was nominated for Best Female Lead at the 37th Independent Spirit Awards. We are pleased to speak to her about her role in the new HBO series called True Detective Night Country. The series is currently available on HBO and you can stream it on HBO Max. So if you have not caught it, make sure to catch up on episode one that just made its debut and sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Black Girl Nerds podcast featuring actor and boxer Callie Reese. Hi, Callie. How are you? I'm good, Jamie. How are you? I am good. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Black Girl Nerds. I, I really appreciate it. This was a really incredible series, and I didn't think True Detective could get any darker. <laughs> well, you haven't met Issa Lopez then, man. <laughs> I know. I was just like, wow, this was really gripping and darker, but I, I loved it, and I ate it up. And I love your character, Navarro. You know, we witness a lot of things that are affecting her conscience throughout this, this narrative. What do you think ultimately drives Navarro with Annie's case specifically? Is it the guilt that she has that she hasn't been able to solve this case on her own that drives her? Or, and by driving her, I mean like kind of drives her obsession with this case or is it the fact that she's angry that she hasn't gotten the support of law enforcement? Navarro is a very calculated mission-based person and has a huge connection intuitively, spiritually, and, and the other side is screaming at her because it's embedded in her inner genes between being originally from Alaska, being half a new Piak herself in a Dominican descent. And her driving force behind this is she she connects Annie Kay's case with, she doesn't know what happened to her mom. 
she doesn't know who killed her mom, what happened to her mom and, and what was really calling to her because her mom was completely on the other side. She also has a connection with her sister who was struggling with the same thing. Um, she's very capable on doing things on her own. She'd rather do things on her own. And she just wants to solve this case to have justice for who killed Annie Kay. She doesn't care how she finds it. Hence the reason why she even wants to work with Damage, who she absolutely loathes to help find her case. So at this point, of course, she's angry that she doesn't have any more support from the law enforcement, but she she's like, I'll figure out a way. Um, it does. She doesn't need praise for her being the one finding what happened to Annie Kay. She just wants to find the answers. And she's that's her drive. Her The only thing holding her together to try to have this drive is her sister. That is the only thing holding her her shit together, really, at this point. Absolutely. You know, there's this great scene with you and Fiona Shaw, who plays Rose, uh, in this in this series uh, where you're in a scene with her where she says that the fabric of all things coming apart is at the seams. Um, and would you say that your character is a metaphor for that your character is like falling apart at the seams of what's happening to you at this moment while you're kind of digging through this case and just trying to figure out things and everything that's happening with the people around you? Yeah, you know, it's funny because Ennis is a place, um, you know, motivated by so many multiple places in Alaska and um, by the people who are there and who, who are belong to the land there. And it's just to kind of paint a picture that this couldn't be further north. And this this land is screaming with the supernatural spiritual side, whether you see it or not, whether you try to deny it's there or not, it's there. Um, And I believe that's definitely part of Navarro's story where she is. She hears it screaming. She's so afraid to give in because she doesn't know what's going to happen when she gives in. She sees, she saw what happened to her mother. She sees what's happening with Julia. She doesn't want that to inevitably happen to her. So she's trying to be in that 3D, in that logical this, but it's gnawing at her insides to know. She knows what she knows and she doesn't even know how she knows. And she's so afraid to give in. But when she finds out that all she had to do was settle in, you know, it's like trying to fit a star in a square thing in that little kid toy. And she's just kind of, you know, trying to fight to fit in this box. But all she had to do was walk her own path in the beginning. And she would have been found, found the answers and would have been comfortable to find herself really. I, I love Navarro's relationship because it's very complicated, but there's this really interesting chemistry between her and Danvers in this story. And Danvers' indifference to Annie's case is kind of what I feel, in my opinion, part of what drives their their relationship. What What do you think is the larger part of why these two, at least kind of in the beginning, why they're so antagonistic towards one another? I think they're a mirror to one another because we see obviously um we see Navarro's struggle, but we also learn about Danvers' struggle. She's trying to ignore things that she can see or doesn't want to see. She I feel like she if if she gives in to that what she's hearing, um, she may just she may lose it. Like where Navarro's like, if I don't hold this together, I'm gonna lose it. Where it's kind of a mirror to each other. And I think you know, Navarro's walking in spiritual and intuition and she doesn't necessarily put that out there. But because Danvers is so neglectful of it she and she pokes at it, she kind of throws it back in her face. So they're kind of a mirror to each other. And it's one of those typical, classical, when you have a deep connection to somebody, no matter whether it's a significant other, sibling or a lover, you can love multiple people, but they love each other so much and they respect each other's skill, they respect each other's issues and are there for each other in their own way, but they absolutely hate each other. 
but they need each other to get to their common, they have a common goal. Um, I just think it adds to the dynamic because Danvers is such an asshole, but it plays off good. And the way she pokes and needles at Navarro, it allows Navarro to express parts of it she doesn't allow other people to see. And vice versa, too. You know what I mean? So it actually works really, really good. And I think it's just because they know each other very, very well that that dynamic is created authentically. You and Jody have this just great chemistry on screen. It's palpable. And I, I love the yin and yang between Navarro and Danvers throughout this story. Um, I mean, speaking of love or lust, or I, I, I don't know what you call it, but Evangeline's romantic relationship with Kavik is very interesting um, because she's kind of like the guy in the relationship <laughs> um, because her boyfriend is uh, a bit more submissive. What what does her treatment of men romantically say about the kind of person that she is? She, her and Kavik, I think is an adorable um, relationship. That's another place where she finds like her, her relationship with Danvers is a place. Uh, her relationship with Rose is a place. Her relationship with Kavik is a place. And this is, I love Issa for doing this, kind of flipping the female perspective on its head where even though something's consensual, that doesn't mean you're in control. You see these scenes in these TVs and films that they, they do, but it's usually in control of the male. Now this is Navarro. She chooses when, how, and who how long and when things happen like that is control this she has there's so many things that she doesn't have control over in her life she doesn't even want to be a cop i'm telling you that right now there's something that she has to do she has mm. to kind of fit in this box to take care of her sister and she, Kavik for her is not her typical other cop other manly like he doesn't he Kavik has his own softer side and he's such a safe place for her because he allows her to be whatever she is, whatever that shows up, and he just allows her to be. She can go, and there's not anything, there's no public affection, there's nothing. It's, I don't even really call it a boyfriend. It's kind of just a person that she can trust right. in that regard. And she doesn't do it because she needs to get off. She does it to have, it's almost like a, a gazelle pouncing on, you know, a puma or like something, a, a, a gazelle pom pouncing on a, I mean, a, vice versa, puma uh, pouncing on a gazelle to just get that satisfaction of, I own this. I solved this, at least. I got the, to the end of this, and that's all I need. Thank you. you know He's just mean? a warm body at night. Just a warm body at night in a comfort zone. I mean, a comfort zone, like, she doesn't, she doesn't, like, enjoy sex like that. Like, I need to go get it. It's like, let me go conquer something, because I need to figure something out. Right. Oh, yeah. There's a, there, there is a power dynamic there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there there's some pretty morbid and dark moments in this series, and just, even as a viewer, you know, it, it definitely took my breath away. Um, you being in it and seeing those scenes, did it take an emotional toll on you? I mean, what did you do with that negative energy at the end of the production day? So I made it a point and I learned this, for, I kind of self-taught, like I have to connect, I have to check in and check out. And that's the same thing, like a bell rings, not to be very, you know, cliche with the boxing thing, but when the bell rings, I'm in a person. When it when it ends and I go home, I'm just I don't I don't like I don't go on the street one shotting people. Like I don't like to fight. I don't like confrontation, but I love the art of boxing. And that's the end goal. We have a goal here. So I made it a point to make sure I check into Navarro, get embedded as deep as I could. And then when I check out, I check out. Navarro, you go to sleep, you mind your business. I'm gonna go to sleep. I mind my business. We need a break. We go here. That's kind of what I did. And like a lot of there was mental health checks. You know, I made sure I do things that made me feel like Kaylee and things that I like to do. And then cause so I can get the best in out of Navarro. I didn't want Kaylee being messed with Navarro, even though there's some little similarities and we went like this at times because it was needed as authentic. But I checked in completely. Like, Navarro, this is all you. And then I'm like, Navarro, leave me alone. 
go see. You know what I mean? I made sure I was very, I had my own thing. Like I took this piercing out and I took my piercings out. I knew when I took these, my stuff off, I was no longer Kaylee. Left it there. Did what I had to do. When I, before I went back, trailer, put, even if it was something as little as a necklace, all right, I'm back to Kaylee, go home. That was at least me. I don't know what other actors do, but that was me. Yeah, no, that's good. You gotta, you gotta take all of that off and just like completely detach because yeah, there, there's some really dark moments on that show. <laughs> I I recently spoke with the showrunner of the new series Echo and there has been this really great, I mean, obviously, probably as you know, there's an indigenous lead character on that show. There's a number of new films that have come out that are directed by indigenous filmmakers. Um, we have your presence on this HBO new series. Do you feel like uh, things are becoming more progressive in this space of indigenous representation, or do we still have a long ways to go? We have a long ways to go, but we've come so far. So it's like, it's like, you know, bases a loader. We, the indigenous is like bad route. You know what I mean? We've been waiting. Storytelling is something that's just so natural to us. Being creative is something that's so natural to us. It's embedded in our genes. We're naturally story, storytellers, how we we told stories to our creation stories. We told stories to pass down culture, um, ceremonies, language to preserve. It's preservation to us. And it's also healing to get things out, to tell people. And we don't need anybody to speak for us. We don't need people to mansplain in an, in like our, our story to everybody else. We need representation on um, this indigenous in the writer's room, directors, actors, it, just creative stories. Um, And I think it's a crazy important time right now because we have agency over our stories and we also don't see the typical PBC documentary on something that happened in the past that's translated way wrong and it's the wrong history. We need to tell our stories in today's world. We get to see like reservation dogs. We get to see Today, life today, it's not in the past. We do things. We wear we wear real clothes. We don't like I get I don't can't tell you how many people have asked me ignorantly. You live in a teepee, you live in a reservation. I didn't grow up in a reservation. I'm an urban native and there's such is this such a thing? So I think that we're in a great time, especially with something like Killers of the Flower Moon, where we have Martin Scorsese, uh, established director, telling this story, working together with Osage Nation to tell this story. Now we can go from there. There's a lot of things that could have been better, but at least we're here. Now we build from there. We don't need a written apology. We just need an acknowledgement of what really happened from our perspective, not what you think happened, but actually from our perspective. And we also have all this talent in the indigenous community that we just need to get the parts because we're good for it. Not because you need to check a box because we need an indigenous person. We can have all these stories and have all this talent be represented and just happen to be indigenous, especially being black and native, especially being from the Cape Verde and Wampanoag Northeast region. We don't see these faces and everybody's mixed up. Everybody, you know, we have so much talent in this, in this industry. And I just think it's, it's time we batter up beta spaces loaded and we about to hit a lot of home runs. Yes, indeed. Preach. I, I love it. I love to see it. You, my last question to you is going back to this great chemistry that you have with Danvers, played by Jodie Foster. You got an opportunity to work with one of the most remarkable and talented actors in this business. Are there any scenes or moments working with Jodie that still resonate with you to this day? Season six, I mean, see, episode six, um, when they are sitting by the fire, it looks like they just have no way out. And that scene on paper looked like a very powerful scene, but that was one of the power most powerful scenes that I absolutely love that scene because you finally get to see 
a glimpse of why Danvers is the way she is. And Jody, you just saw, I mean, I'm a huge fan and she's just so lovely, so kind, so intelligent, so open to collaborate. And just to see her really work from that, because that was not an easy scene on by any means on both sides. Um, but that was like, we were like, damn. Like there was just such a let's say that's one of my favorite scenes from her that she did and I just learned so much it's like getting you know this is my third job getting an opportunity to learn from one of the best it's like compared to boxing like getting asked to go to work with Mike Tyson in 1986 for his heavyweight world title fight like I couldn't ask for anything better and on top of it she was hilarious and so lovely to work with I mean it was a blessing they spoiled me because I'm gonna think everything's gonna be like this now going forward <laughs> Well, you guys were great on screen together. I absolutely enjoyed every bit of this series. I love that it's a female-led series, both behind the scenes and in front of the camera. And thank you so much, Kelly, for taking the time to talk to Black Girl Nerds. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you so much for having me on Black Girl Nerds. I'm so looking forward to hearing this. So thank you for having me. It's been lovely. Thank you. All right. You take care. Have a great holiday. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Brodnax. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find various episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Audioboom, Google Play Music, and Spotify.